Hi guys, thank you so much for joining us here tonight. Um, I know we're on lockdown and uh, you know people are busy doing their work and have various things to do. So I really appreciate you guys joining us here today. Uh, first and foremost, I'd really like to thank Utkarsh for writing this book. I think it was something that was a long time coming from him. I've seen him writing so many times. I've seen his posts and I think this really sums it up nicely. It puts everything uh, he's done and so much work that he's put in and it's given us a very nice package in which we can access a lot of his experiences, his learnings and the people he's networked with and uh, you know gives us a very good package that we can access all of that mindshare from. So I'd really like to thank Utkash for that. I'd just like to say Utkash that um, my regular reading strategy with this book didn't really work too well. And not because you did a good job, but not because you did a bad job, but because actually you did a very, very good job. So every single page, every single chapter, uh, I was just finding myself highlighting entire pages on my Kindle. And two or three chapters in, I realized that I just highlighted everything. So I had to stop doing that. And I thought, um, you know, let me just read and absorb the book and interact with the text. And then I'll come back and highlight things that, that resonated with me. So, uh, just like to mention that the way I kind of looked at this book was that not so much as teachings or learnings for us to take, but I kind of looked at it like in chapter two, Utkash talks about micro experiments. So I kind of looked at this book like micro invitations in every single chapter. It's like Utkash is extending an invitation to us where He's first presented an idea. He's then spoken about people who've implemented that idea in their lives. He's spoken about his personal experience with it. And he then finally invites you to try it on in some easy to follow step-by-step -step process that might allow you to replicate similar experiences or outcomes in your own life. And the best part is that there's no rhetoric and there's no dogma in the entire book. So he's not forcing these ideas upon you. They're just there as invitations. So I think um, that's something that I really enjoyed about it. And definitely, I think like a lot of other people who've read this book have said that they would keep coming back to it. Similarly, the more life experiences I go through, I would also come back to the text, uh, read more. And I think different things would jump out at me and would be contextual to my life at that point in time. So I think just like to, you know, uh, really give you two thumbs up on the book. Um, a little bit about myself and my life experiences. I'll just talk a bit about that and then I'll tie it into what I learned from the book or how the book gave me a vocabulary to articulate some of the things that I've been through. So what most people know about me is that I am afflicted by a rare genetic disease. At the age of 13, I was diagnosed with something called retinitis pigmentosa which essentially means that my retina cells are dying over time. Currently, my functional vision is almost fully impaired and it's just getting progressively worse and worse over time. But I've not really let that define myself and who I am. What most people also know about me is that when I was 17, I learned to play the guitar online. And this was before the time of YouTube before the time of us being able to access teachers online. And by this time, I already lost a lot of my vision. 
I could barely see the guitar strings, but I practiced a little bit every day until I was able to play the songs that I really loved. And within six months of picking up the instrument, I performed on stage for 250 people. In my early 20s, I started reading. I started reading audiobooks. And I became so addicted to reading that I started to read a few, almost a few hundred books in the past four to five years. What most people know about me is that I serve on the board of directors for one of India's largest education companies. When I joined the company, there was no digital education available through the company's content delivery. And I started the e-commerce vertical. I had to face not only a lot of external competition, but also a lot of internal friction from people who'd been in this company for many decades and were not able to accept that things could be done in a new way. I took that vertical from zero rupees to a few million US dollars in revenue per year. But what most people don't know about me is that I've spent my entire life just trying to fit in. When I moved school at age 14, I skipped the first lesson on my first day of school, hiding in the playground because I was so overcome by anxiety. At age 15, I was no longer able to see the blackboard in school and I never told anyone because I was so scared about what my friends would think, what my teachers would think, and most importantly, what I would think about myself. When I performed guitar in front of 250 people, I didn't sleep the night before, not even one second. Why? I was just too scared about what people would think if I played a wrong note. As I told you, I've read a few hundred books in the last few years. And that's not because I feel like I'm really smart, but because I felt like everybody else around me was much smarter than I was. At age 26, when I got married, I was too scared to be my real self around my wife. I married the woman of my dreams, and yet it was almost like I wasn't able to live up to that dream. I've had such low self-esteem for most of my life that I automatically put everybody else around me up on a higher pedestal. And then I spend most of my time trying to kick that pedestal out from beneath them just to make myself feel better about who I am. This is exactly what Utkash has written in the book about malignant envy. Over time, as my vision got worse, I lost my eyesight, but I gained the gift of insight. I was not only able to listen to people on what they were saying on the surface, but I was able to listen to how they were feeling on the inside. But the problem with this gift, the dark side of this gift was that I spent so much time listening to other people that I forgot to listen to myself. I forgot to listen to who I was. In the book, Utkarsh has written about how it can be so tiring to wear a mask for 12 hours a day and to be someone else. Well, I'd just like to tell you that if you think it's tiring doing that for 12 hours, I did that for 20 years of my life. And I think it goes to what's written 
in this book about the focusing illusion that how when we spend so much time focusing on one thing, we make it so big in our heads that it becomes far more important in our heads than what it actually is in reality. And it's taken so much self-work, it's taken so much courage just to step out of that. And I've had to learn to align myself to my authentic self so that what I think and what I say and what I say and what I do is all in alignment. On one of my network capital masterclasses, I spoke about stoicism. What I'd like, like to tell you right here today that although I gave a lot of examples about my life in that, in that masterclass, I didn't really feel what I was saying in my bones. And I think it really goes down to what, again, is spoken about in the book about having various mentors. Utkar speaks about Elizabeth Gilbert, about having self-forgiveness. I think that when we're constantly trying to be someone, or constantly trying to do something, that we don't take time out to celebrate our victories and that we really don't take that time to be our authentic selves. And Elizabeth Gilbert talks about self-forgiveness. I think self-forgiveness also leads into permission, right? So this idea about giving ourselves permission to feel these negative emotions, to understand that negative emotions aren't something that's wrong with us, but again, they're just something to be managed. This is what something Utkash had written in chapter two. Which we also learn in this book about Yuval Noah Harari about how he talks about getting to know yourself. And this is what I've really been doing in the past two years. I've gotten into the depths about what I am. I've stopped asking the question why and started to ask the question what. What is it that makes me think in a certain way? What was it that made me such a people pleaser? And honestly, I didn't really like the answers I found, but it's given me that clarity, right? Utkarsh speaks about how clarity is power. And this is something that I constantly talk to people about. And when I was able to ask myself what and not why, I stopped judging myself. And I was able to get that clarity about who I am and why am I behaving this way? And I could then start taking responsibility for the fact that yes, I've made a life, I'm not authentic, but now I can start being authentic to, towards who I am. In chapter nine, Utkarsh talks about transformative resilience. It's not just about turning your setbacks into comebacks, but it's really about taking your setbacks and turning them into some kind of strength. And that's, I think, really what's allowed me to transform myself in the past two years. While I've been fighting this battle with, with my losing eyesight over the past, well, I would say 33 years of my life because it's been happening since my birth, but really in the past two years, that's when I've really learned about transformative resilience. And I've taken my visual disability and I've become so adept at absorbing information through videos, through audio, where I can now read 80 to 90 books a year. I started by reading maybe five, 10 books a year. I moved to 40 or 50. I've now moved to 70 or 80 because I can listen to audio so fast that I can increase the speed of the text-to-speech software where it's almost moving at five or 600 words a minute. And now I can not only listen to those books, I can absorb and retain that information. And again, it goes to what was spoken about in the book about the compound of, compounding effect. Earlier, I used to read all these books and 
it wasn't really leading towards anything. And now I can start to see connections between disparate ideas. And this is what I really love about Utkarsh's book, where he's tied in so many, I would say, almost um, ideas that we weren't even expecting. So unexpected ideas where he's tied together. He speaks about a, a, um, a flea market and how about these people selling their wares in the flea market have learned scale, sales skills that we could never have learned in school. So I really love how he's brought together these ideas in the book and it really resonates with not just what I am, but with who I am. And again, just like to thank Utkash for writing this book and giving me the opportunity to articulate myself and give me a vocabulary of words to really talk about who I am and how I've had that opportunity to transform my life with some of these ideas. So with that, um, you know, I think that that covers most of my experience. We can obviously go on and answer more questions as we as we go along. Hi, Gaurav. Um, you've read the book and uh, you and I have discussed uh, various aspects of learning and skill sharing a bunch of times. You're somebody I love brainstorming ideas about skill sharing, learning, um, resilience, grit. But uh, I'm uh, constantly amazed by your ability to process information and uh, insights with such clarity. So thank you for your comments on my book. Uh, but because I know there are, you know, literally hundreds of concepts presented. I'm, I'm I, I love how you're able to connect different mental models with different stories and ideas. Um, and your masterclass, which I encourage a lot of uh, viewers to check out is just like a testament to what great clarity looks like. So tell us about uh, how you prepared for that masterclass on stoicism and uh, how did you decide to um, you know, present the examples? And I would love for you to explain to our audience, how did you overcome the myriad logistical challenges? I don't know if you remember the first time uh, you did the really popular masterclass. There were, um, there were a bunch of technical issues that were happening at your place, but uh, Somehow, despite everything, we did that masterclass. It turned out to be one of the most popular masterclasses on Network Capital. Uh, but what amazed me was that you stuck stuck course. You did not let that really, you know, troublesome <clears throat> technical glitch get to you. And that's something that speaks volumes about who you are as a person. With the power of compounding, you've really managed to make resilience your superpower. So tell us how you prepared for the masterclass and tell us uh, um, how did you make compounding a part of your day-to-day -day existence? Right. So how I prepared for that masterclass in stoicism was that I got really involved in the entire subject. And I think it really goes to, uh, you know, the idea of having a large surface area of ideas. I always like to try on different things, different philosophies, different ideas. And I, I think at that point in my life, I was on a bit of a low stretch. And I came across Stoicism and especially the work and writing of Marcus Aurelius. And I really liked the concepts. So I started to break it down. I read, I think, five or six different books. I did an online course called How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. And I just broke it down into, okay, what are the ideas which someone really needs to know about where they can just listen to for half an hour, 40 minutes, 
and understand 80 or 90% about what stoicism really is. So I took all of my thoughts and made a presentation for myself. Now, while I didn't present this to the network capital audience, it was just me trying to clarify my thoughts to myself. And that presentation became so long that I had to start cutting out ideas, introducing it down to the really key concepts. And I spent a lot of time practicing what I was going to talk about. And the logistical challenges what Urkash is talking about is that we had to do that masterclass on Facebook Live. And I wasn't able to use my computer's text-to-speech software for some reason. So my internet kept disconnecting. And I wasn't able to interact with any of the visual cues on the screen because I couldn't see the screen. So I was literally just talking, 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 and not realizing that the internet had cut out. And Utkarsh would call me on my phone saying that, hey, Gaurav, you know, you've been cut off. And this is where you got cut off at, at this point. So please just connect back and pick up where you left off. So we did that. And that happened, I think, four or five times during the entire process of this masterclass. But I was so intent on sharing what I had learned because it was so <coughs> transformative and so pivotal for me that I always feel like if something has helped me, I really want to be able to share that information with, with others so that it can have that same impact on their lives. And again, that's why I really love the way Utkarsh has written this book because he's taken all these experiences and has spoken about the transformative effect it's had on him. So I think sharing, everyone has something to share and everyone has something to learn, which is what network capital is about and what Utkarsh constantly talks about. And that's where it really came from. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for our, uh, listeners and uh, viewers around the world, what they should know is that uh, every single person who's been referenced directly and indirectly in the book has been some someone who's you know ha who has contributed to the uh, growth of network capital and essentially the the movement of scaling trust and scaling peer-to-peer uh, -peer learning that we're all after. Um, if you uh, if you look if you read the book carefully. Um, I try and explain that subtle dance that goes on between productivity and serendipity. Yeah. So um, many people who I meet in my life or you know, who, who we all stumble into are serendipitous meetings that evolve into friendships, more partnerships, what have you. But we are constantly trying to be productive. So Gaurav is also somebody who's, uh, who's a very productive person He's a CEO, he's an investor, he's a CEO coach, uh, he's a kind person, he's a philanthropist. Uh, Gaurav and his partner as well, I think both of them are an amazing couple. Um, but uh, from what I know of them, uh, which is quite a lot, is that they also uh, constantly are in the pursuit of balancing serendipity and productivity. So explain the conundrum, Gaurav, like on a day-to-day -day basis, how do you try and balance this, uh, this very complicated mix? It's, it's, uh, I love the way you put it as a dance. Um, so I am someone who's super structured. In fact, a lot of you who might be watching the recording of this video later on might not know that actually the, the timing of the live session got changed. And I just found out, I think about two hours prior to the change. And I was at my wits end. And again, not because I wasn't prepared, but just because it causes so much anxiety and overwhelm to me when plans get changed for absolutely no reason at all. 
And my wife, on the other hand, is very non-structured. So the two of us living together, working together. In fact, we just launched our coaching business together, Mind Monk. And we coach people together on emotional intelligence, resilience, overcoming childhood trauma, things like that. And it's such a funny dance between the two of us where I'm constantly making to-do lists and executing on them. And I miss out on these certain different occasions where we can meet people who might add something that we might not have known about or have chance encounters with people. And Supriya, my wife, is completely unstructured. In fact, a few years ago, we, we went to Croatia and it was completely unplanned. And you can talk to her about it. I was so stressed about making the bookings, uh, booking the flights, booking the hotels. In fact, I ended up booking three flights incorrectly because I was so stressed about the entire thing being planned last minute. And it turned out to be one of the best trips we've ever had in our lives. In fact, I think it was the first time I swam in the ocean after I think five or six years because Croatia just has this calm blue water. And I, and I think that's where me and my wife, Supriya, balance each other out so well, where sometimes I try to add structure to the way things, she's doing things. And she tries to add a little bit of a fun element or a little bit of spontaneity to what I'm doing. And we both are so extreme that we kind of balance each other out. You might think it doesn't work. And yes, at times we do go crazy with each other, but it does balance out in the end. I think that's what's so beautiful about um, the fact that you can marry someone who's so different to you and still get along and learn from each other. Yeah. Um, uh, thank you for uh, such a lovely and thought-provoking answer, Gaurav. Uh, there is a reason some people ask me that why is couples who work a chapter in the book? And it's all actually referenced as mental models in several sections as well. Because, you know, in, uh, on network capital and as a philosophy, I really believe that work and life are not two separate things. Work and life constantly go hand in hand. So it's uh, the sequential way of uh, structuring life that first I'll get my MBA, then I'll get this, then I'll, and then I'll start living. I think that's just like quite uh, um, suboptimal. So now uh, you and uh, your partner, um, uh, how, how did you guys decide to work together? Um, and what are some principles from the book that you try and apply in your work life as a couple? And what are the challenges, if any, of working together? What are the fun aspects of us? Walk us through the couple aspect of your work-life adventure with your partner. Sure. So I, I think the way it had started out was that both of us were finding our purpose, and we weren't really sure about what it was. For both of us, it was slightly different journeys, but it kind of converged. For me, it was the fact that I, I left college with three semesters to go, so I actually didn't um, go through the normal progression of milestones that we are taught to hit in order to be successful. And that was actually another aspect that led to my low self-esteem in the early years of my, my young adulthood. And I joined this business and in 2017, our company went for an IPO. And while on the outside, I made everyone think that, oh my God, this is such an amazing thing. And I really made people look like I was enjoying it. It was actually one of the most hollow times of my life because I was one part of a larger whole, but I didn't feel like I was adding enough value to the business. When I look back, I realized that I actually was, but again, my low self-esteem made me think that I wasn't. And I felt purposeless in my life. 
um, my wife and I were constantly looking for what is it that will help us add meaning and purpose to our lives. Again, which was spoken about so so nicely in the book, how millennials are constantly looking for purpose and how our businesses should be something that impacts the world on a on a larger scale than not just ourselves. So, Supriya and I were searching for something, and she she came up with this. We were actually both of us <laughs> already coaching most of our peer group in an informal setting. So she wanted to put a more formal structure around it. And when she said that, okay, this is what I want to do, I, I immediately said that, okay, I want to do this with you. And I think I might not have given her an option. I, I hope I did. Uh, I gave her the option to say no, that, that I don't want to work with you because it is so difficult to you know, be around someone constantly all the time. And what Utkarsh spoke about in the book about modern love, about having contracts, when we got married, I think we weren't so clear with each other about what we want and expect from each other. And that actually caused a lot of turbulence in the initial few years of our lives, uh, in, in, of our married life. And when we became very clear that okay, this is who I am, this is who you are, and this is how we can kind of integrate that and coexist in, in, a, in a manner where we're both very happy with each other and with our relationship, that's when things start to get a lot better and became into the relationship what we have now. And I think that's what we brought to the working relationship as well, where sometimes if I'm starting to overstep my boundaries, she lets me know about it very clearly. And vice versa, when I think that she's not executing on something <clears throat> with, on a time frame or a manner where I think she should, we've kind of let go of our ego and our arrogance and able to accept that, that constructive criticism from each other. So I think that's what um, there, there's some challenges, but I think it, it works out very well in the end. Okay. Thank you. I have a couple of personal questions. Uh, feel free to answer them or not answer them any way you like. Um, the sure. first is, um, I talk about expectations, high and low, um, the power of expectations on performance. So um, I have a sense of what it did to your life, uh, but do you are you comfortable talking about uh, the power of expectations on performance? And I'd love if you try and link it to self-esteem because, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, you're also a rational person. If you grew a business, say, from zero to, a, say, a few million US, that's like, you know, in Indian rupees, that's uh, that's decent amount of crores. Um, it's not insignificant, right? Like that's uh, that's a heavily profitable business. So if performance is good, then why would your self-esteem shake? And then if you could link it back to expectations somehow. So long story, yeah. connect the dots between expectation yeah, and uh, the other two aspects. In the book where when others have low expectations of us, we kind of need to guide their thought process and show them the value that we bring. Well, I think that's about others, but when we have such low expectations of ourselves, it becomes so difficult because <laughs> we then don't have the courage to really take up something. And I realize now that courage doesn't mean that we have a lack of fear. It just means that you feel the fear and still manage to move forward. So yes, I did have low, self, low expectations of myself for a very long time. And that's what led to my low self-esteem because I, I was constantly looking at how I felt on the inside and comparing it to how people around me looked on the <coughs> outside. Even network capital, for example, you know, I see all these people who are getting into Harvard and INSEAD and working at McKinsey and, you know, chasing the, the lives that, that they really want to build for themselves. And 
uh, here I am, and I got rejected by five out of the six colleges I had applied to. And the one college I went to, I didn't even manage to graduate from that. So these life experiences just, just kind of, again, compounded in a negative way to make me have this low self-esteem where I just had no expectation of myself. And people talk about having no expectations as a, as a, as a freeing thought process. But for me, it was like shackles I'd applied on myself that around me, I see everyone else on this pedestal, but I can't see myself ever reaching on that height. So I started to try to kick that pedestal out from underneath them where, okay, this person is so intelligent. Then I'd start about thinking, okay, how is this person really not intelligent, right? I'd start to cook up these stories in my head. And that's what kind of led to this, this low self-esteem. So it wasn't, uh, I think low self, low expectation can be both good and bad. But for me, that double-edged sword kind of ended up cutting my own fingers more than it did the other way around. So that's that's how it, it it kind of worked out in my life. And as I said, the clarity is power aspect. That's when when I started to become clear about these patterns that running in my head, I was able to identify them, and I was able to identify them more quickly. So it happens all the time. It's not that these patterns have deleted themselves from my psyche, but I can now catch them uh, <clears throat> catch them happening much sooner than than later, and able to to kind of change my mindset and, and, and address them in a more healthy manner now. Thank you, Gaurav. Uh, and finally, do you have, uh, on days when you feel terrible today, and on day, say, old demons come back, say, either about uh, uh, self-esteem or about uh, anxiety for your future, or just feeling, say, a sense of hopelessness, things that we all go through. What's your advice as a, uh, as as somebody who's read the book, as an as a CEO, coach, as an investor, uh, but most importantly, how do you buck yourself up when you're having a horrible day? So I think the way I do it is first and foremost. Again, it goes to what what I think about permission. Right, when we have a negative emotion welling up so deeply inside of us, we most of us haven't been taught about how to deal with it. Right. Like, just like how those salespeople in the flea market that you spoke about weren't taught sales, I think we now need to learn this, this very important skill which wasn't taught to us in school. And what we first need to realize is that negative emotions aren't really negative. Emotions are just emotions, right? So first and foremost is to identify that, okay, I'm feeling sad or I'm feeling lonely or I'm feeling hopeless. When we're able to name and shame something, that then gives us the power that, okay, now that I know what this is, I can start to identify the root cause that, okay, if I'm feeling guilty, okay, what is it that I'm feeling guilty about? And for a lot of us, especially for network capital insiders, a lot of times we're so productive and we're able to do 90 things in a day, but the day that we do 80 things, which is still more than most people can do, we still end up feeling guilty. And if we're able to first identify the emotion, Secondly, identify what is causing that emotion. We can then shine a light on that and see that, okay, there's really no reason for me to be feeling that way. And even if there is, I think, again, give yourself permission to really feel those emotions really deep down into your depths. And once you've felt it, it will then leave your body. It will leave your mind and your body because you're not trying to suppress them. You're feeling it. And just like a superconductor, just like gold, which conducts electricity, you'll become a superconductor for emotion. It'll come, 
it'll go through your body and eventually it will leave. You won't feel it like it's something that you're suppressing over time. And again, that's how I learned to let go of fear, anxiety, shame and guilt, which I was hanging on to for almost 20 years. So I think that's, that's how I managed to deal with it. So final question, what's your advice to your 18 year old self? So when I was 18, I used to think about every single day as the worst day of my life because I have a progressive disease and every day my vision is getting worse. So I came up with this operating system, this software in my mind that every day is the worst day of my life. And I managed to move from that to thinking about, okay, what can I do to make this day a meaningful day? So what I've learned is that nothing in life has any meaning except for the meaning that you assign it. So I've gone from my vision having a very negative meaning to, for me, to me being able to take that and as we read about in the book about transformative resilience, transforming that into a superpower where I can now read so much more than any more of my peer group. So that started to hold meaning for me. So if, if you can realize, or if I could have realized at age 18, that my vision doesn't have, the vision loss doesn't have the meaning that I've attached to it of, of being something neg negative, I can attach a more positive meaning to it. So that's much more empowering than what I was going through at that point in time. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Gaurav is someone who embodies transformative resilience. And I have to tell you, one of the most uh, satisfying parts of uh, writing for me has been uh, the process of actually understanding the depths and breadths of uh, um, some you know, pivotal people who've shaped the network capital journey and my own personal journey as friends and uh, peers uh, from all walks of life and thinking about why they do what they do. So I really hope as you go through the various concepts of the seductive illusion of hard work, you like Gaurav are able to create and contextualize these principles to your liking. And Gaurav, I must say, every time I speak to you, I feel I become smarter. So thank you for making me smart in the last half hour. Um, I'm really, really looking forward for your uh, master classes uh, in the CEO fellowship, uh, which is which is going on as we speak, because, uh, you know, clarity is power. And if there's one person who embodies it, along with uh, transformative resilience, it's you, Gaurav. Thank you very much for being there. And thank you for doing what you do. Cheers. Bye. Say hi to Supriya. <laughs>